0: Hi everybody, Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. It's Tuesday, February 6th, 2024, the 27th day of Shvat, 5784. Another foggy, rainy day in the land. Looks like we're at the tail end of this week-long storm. And my mood is, I guess it kind of like matches the weather or the fact that I hurt my shoulder four months ago. I realized that I've been carrying this war on my shoulder for four months. It cannot just be a coincidence. Um, so that's bothering me and I can't swim and it's just annoying. And I have a birthday coming up, which is always a blessing to reach a birthday, but it's also like, you know, yeah, it's not 39 again. So there's just a lot going on in a contemplative mood. And, um, so I decided that I would have uh, pity on any guests that I would have. And I would just do a quick monologue today. Cause I actually had a very interesting week. Um, Last week, I was really honored to guide Sid Rosenberg from WABC. He's got his own show four hours a morning. I don't know how the guy does it. He looks like Mr. Clean. He's like really strong and, you know, like one of those guys. And he, uh, he cranks out a radio show on the East Coast every morning from 6 to 10. Like, while well, people are going to work. I guess people go to work early. And there's a bunch of people go to work late. So he grabs all of them. And uh, he came to Israel, sponsored by one Israel Fund. First time here which is really pretty amazing. Um, He just felt like he had to come here now. He came with his family, and I was asked to guide him on Tuesday uh, here in Gushitzion, which uh, was very cool because there's a lot of... um, there's a lot of topics to talk about in Gush Etzion, the whole Judea thing and the whole history thing. So what I did is I took them to the film. There's a really great film, for those of you who haven't been here, um, in Kibbutz Kfar Etzion at the heritage site about the history of the area and specifically about what happened here in May of 1948. This is one of the places where Israel lost during our War of Independence. I just have to throw this in because I... Learned this yesterday from someone from the foreign ministry more on that in a minute And I thought it was so brilliant that we make a mistake in israel We talk about that. We got our independence or we established a state in 1948 And what that leads people to believe is that so there must have been something else here before like another entity And that's like an opening for the so-called palestinians to say That they had a state and we stole it for them and all those kinds of lies that we all are quite familiar with um But yesterday, someone said something to me that I thought was actually much more appropriate. We regained our independence. It's a small nuance, but it's super important because the Jews have not really left the land. Okay, there were always Jews here. Um, But other people came and conquered and colonized and took over and we regained independence and that's very, very different because we regained sovereignty. We were always here. This was always our country. We always prayed towards Jerusalem, dreamed about Zion. But we just weren't able to fulfill that until the late 1940s. And that's a very different way of doing it. And I love that. And I thought to myself, wow, why haven't I heard that before? Um, But in this battle that we are waging... For the legitimacy of the state of Israel. And it, it sounds so crazy because there should be nothing more legitimate on the planet um, than the Jewish state of Israel. Uh, but it, I thought it was like, I wanted to share that with you guys because I thought that was super, super, super important. Anyway, back to Sid Rosenberg's and his family. So we did the film in Kfarzion. Then I took them to see behind the scenes, not for the public, uh, some of the security apparatus that we have uh, to keep the people safe here. Because we all know here, sitting in Judea and Samaria, that October 7th is just the ability away. It's not that they don't want to do it. The Arabs and the Palestinian Authority, they would love to do the same thing. They have done it on smaller scales. Um, So we have to keep our uh, to keep on our toes here and to that end we have drones and cameras and all kinds of things and so he got to look at How careful we are because every person counts and lives count That's the most important thing that we have here is that every life matters And we will do whatever we can to make sure that we stay safe and that any good people here stay safe And then he had to split because he had to go into jerusalem to tape his show because one o'clock here in the afternoon was six o'clock in the morning there. So he had to go because he's very devoted to his show and he was having guests on more on that later also, because I was one of them. Um, and then I spent the rest of the day with his wife and kids who are also awesome and just really soaking it up, understanding a lot. Uh, and it was really Really, you know, just sometimes you just click with people like right away. There's no fuss. There's no BS. There's no like, just get it. Um, and that's how, that's how I felt, especially with this wife. She was really, really great. So, so that was a super interesting day. And then he asked me to come in and be interviewed. Um, on the show on Thursday. So I believe that Tabitha has worked her magic and is putting a clip of the show in. So when I finish this sentence, um, if you want to, when I finish, act, yeah. So I'll put the clip of the show in in a couple of minutes and you can listen to it if you're just like 10 minutes. Um, and uh, and so that kind of like wrapped that up. But it's, um, it's super important. There are people, there are a lot of people out there who, feel that israel's on the right path but haven't been here and don't understand and there's still no replacement for being here seeing the places it's like a totally totally different understanding so with that here is a few minutes of my interview from last thursday with sid rosenberg on Sid and friends i guess i'm now one of his friends
1: my first guest today is a, uh, a lady who took the rosenberg family and justin on a tour through a really, really interesting place, Gush Etzion, up in Judea and Samaria, which is a very interesting part of Israel. Well, not really. Not really Israel. She's going to tell you the whole story. <laughs> and she was great. Now, we had to leave early, Justin and I, to come back here to the Cedars and go to work. But she had my wife and kids the rest of the day. Her name is Eve Harrow. And we had somebody related to you yeah. on this show a couple mm-hmm. days ago. What is uh, the relation?
0: He's uh, Uh, my nephew.
1: Your nephew, okay. He was great, too. He was was great. Well, you did a terrific job on Tuesday. Good to see you this morning.
0: Really nice Mm -hmm. to be here.
1: Great to have you. So, you know, you you told us on Tuesday and uh, took us through this tour, and we saw the, I don't want to get too detailed when it comes to security, but we saw some really interesting stuff. But you said Judea and Samaria, right outside of, of really Ephrat and Bethlehem, and not far from Jerusalem, about 40 minutes away is Israel but it's not really Israel. So if you want to explain that to the listening audience, that would be great.
0: Okay, so first of all, Judea is where the term Jew comes from. It's it's actually a land. It's after the tribe of Judah and the place is called Judea and that's Yehuda, Yehudim. Okay, so Jews can source themselves to Judea. To saying that Jews don't belong in Judea is like, well, I don't know, Puerto Ricans don't belong in Puerto Rico. I don't know what it is. Yeah. I mean, this, this is the indigenous thing. Israel lost these places in 1948, and they were ethnically cleansed of the Jews by, by the Jordanians. Oh, they lost them in
1: 1948, mm-hmm. but we kicked their ass. Doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, so we,
0: we managed to establish a Jewish state, which we hadn't had for a very, very long time, but these areas weren't included in that, and Jordan ethnically cleansed all the Jews there. So in June of 67, in the context of the Six Day War, when Israel liberates these areas, there are no Jews there. And so there's this idea that the Jews who live there now are some... Zerpers, settlers, whatever it is, if you believe that, you believe in ethnic cleansing. Good for you. I'm not in that camp. But what Israel didn't do in Judea and Samaria after 67, which they did do in Jerusalem and which they did do on the Golan Heights, which former President Trump recognized, is apply Israeli law, meaning that close to 10% of Israeli Jews live in these areas. It's not just a few people camped out on a hilltop. And we are Israeli citizens in every sense. We pay taxes. We get medical care. 40% 40% of the soldiers that have been killed since October 7th come from Judea and Samaria. You can see the education of, of the loyalty to the state. However, By the way, d- d-
1: just two days ago, the day after we you were torn, uh, I wasn't there. I was in, in uh, Gush. This was in Kafar. No, that's where we saw
0: the No, and where we saw the film. Oh, yes.
1: So the latest soldier to die was from there. So
0: we drove through the neighborhood, and those neighborhoods yesterday had a funeral. And the, the whole town is more exactly where we were. Wow. So that's a sacrifice that we're making. However, all the Israeli governments since 1967 have not taken the, ma- the major step of either annexing these places or at least applying Israeli law on them. And that's why when you still hear people talking about a two-state solution, which is insane, okay, oh, we did so well giving the Palestinian Authority in Hamas Gaza, let's repeat it in the heart of the country right outside of Tel Aviv, so anybody who's doing that, I, I, I can't even anybody? understand anybody.
1: How about the president of the United States? Exactly. Yeah. But if Israel, and you're from LA, so that's you still know. the
0: United States, kind of.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like I was eating granola before it was popular. I grew up in a California. No, but so that that still leaves all this up in the air because it is not officially part of the state of Israel. But what we're doing there is punching way above our weight in so many ways and preventing what happened on October 7th from happening in the middle part of Israel because we're there.
1: And stuff does happen there all the time. I mean, uh, again, this uh, barbecue that I attended last night, these soldiers have been fighting, in Janine, which is uh, very close to where you are, I think people in America have no idea. They think there's a war in the south, there's going to be a war in the north, but there is fighting going on right there. And these are Israeli Jewish soldiers protecting that area outside of Jerusalem that, like you said, is not part of Israel, yet it really is. It's a little confusing, but the truth is I don't think Americans know How much fighting is going on around the whole country?
0: All the time. Uh, Look, we believe in preventing preventing terrorism. We don't want to have the funerals. And so when Israel Fund, who I know sponsored part of your trip and for whom I have the honor of being the director of tourism and, edu- and education, has spent a tremendous amount of resources in securing these places. But, you know, what happened on October 7th shocked us in terms of scale, but not in terms of what they did. There have been people in the Jewish communities of Judea and Samaria who have been slaughtered in their beds and the baby's heads cut off and girls oh, yeah. who have been raped and their breasts have been cut off oh, during the rape. So this behavior. This ISIS-like behavior, that wasn't new. It was the scale and yeah, the shot and where it happened right, right. that has thrown everybody.
1: So, you know, we talked about this in the, uh, in the van. You're an extraordinary tour, uh, tour guide. You're Thank great. You. You're great. And the information of wealth was really impressive. <laughs> but I liked it when you talked about America because as much as I love it here, and I really do love it, my first trip. I'm going back to Kennedy Airport on Sunday, yeah. and uh, that is still my home. So, uh, when you talked about Los Angeles and how your life has changed since you moved here, I find that interesting because, again, anecdotal, it's just one person. But I've spoken to a lot of folks, including some of these soldiers last night, who moved to Israel, did their Aliyah, from someplace in the United States. Right. And never want to go back. They're not like, I missed the Super Bowl, I miss whatever you may like about New York, LA, Chicago. None of them, none of them ever want to go back no matter how many wars are going on in the country.
0: Look, it's easier to live in the United States, and I personally did not move because I didn't like the United States. It's an extraordinary country. It's probably the greatest country that really ever was on the planet. The opportunities that it gives to people, it saddens me to my bones, that it's falling apart, that it's destroying itself from the inside. And we talked about that, the ingratitude that I find among a lot of American youth as to what a great country it is and what sacrifices it took to keep it like that. Now, here in Israel, there's a tremendous amount of meaning to our lives. I have seven kids and a whole bunch of grandchildren. What I do is for them. But there is a meaning here not just for us, but we, we are full of gratitude, you know, some people yeah, say, yeah, like, most Israelis aren't religious. It's a term that I can't stand because you can't tell how somebody believes by what they're wearing and what their relationship is with God. We understand that we're part of something much, much bigger than our generation. We are – it's 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 collective memory. I mean, I am doing things for the future, and I'm doing things because of the people in the past who made those sacrifices. You, and the food is awesome. The food is great, yes. yes.
1: Um, you talk about the future. Are you nervous? I mean – we know what happened in the south. Okay, that was horrendous. Right. But it seems like, when I'm talking to people this week, that's just the appetizer. That's you yeah, and well, The north is really going to be a huge issue. You may have issues as far south as Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, who knows? Are you nervous?
0: Um I have a problem in that I had to quell my fears already years ago in order to continue to live where I live. And so there's a limit at how much I will let terrorism control my life. Any road that is open in Israel and controlled by the IDF, I'm not going to go into Bethlehem or Ramallah, but any road the Jews are allowed to travel on, I will go on, even if there's no one else on that road, because my being on that road makes it safer for other people. There is a collective here. There's a collective responsibility. The soldiers that die are not, I mean, they're not dying for themselves or for their families they're doing it for all of us and so i have to do i'm not a soldier i have to do whatever i can do to help this country go in the direction that now, unfortunately, a lot of people realize the wrong directions. You know, one of the least satisfying things to do is to say, I told you so. Mm. But for the last 30 years, I fought against Oslo. I fought against the Gilad Shalit deal, you know, letting out uh, a thousand, including Sinwar, the guy who's running the whole thing in Hamas. How many people have died because we let him out? I moved to Gaza with my kids in the summer of 2005 to try and prevent the expulsion because it was so clear. I mean, I have a master's degree in psychology, but you don't have to be a psychologist understand what's going to happen here. You just have to listen to the other side, Th- from the river to the sea. They have all the blurbs. They're, they can do it in a sentence. We can't. I talked to you like for 45 minutes just <laughs> yeah. getting out there. and even get started. We yeah. have a complicated narrative. But um, we are not only going to survive, but we're going to thrive. And... When I, when I get up in the morning and I look at my phone and I look for those two words in Hebrew, like it's been allowed now to be publicized, and it's the names of the soldiers who died while I, I was sleeping, and I weep every single morning, even if I don't know who they are, because I know who they are. Because sure. we are, this is my tribe. These are my people. And everything that I'm going to do here, and everything you're doing here from where you are, don't minimize it, is for this. But its we were talking about this. It's not just for us. It's for the decent people in the world. You know, we were given this mandate a long time ago to bring the Bible to the world and in that means decide who is decent and who isn't. The Bible's super clear on that and that has been our mandate and we're still doing it and we're still going to continue to do it.
1: You know, so well said and, and that brings me to the point uh, when to close up this conversation but where I get angry which is there are so many people in the United States and around the world who don't really want to ruffle feathers. They make it clear they love the Jews, they love Israel. You go do your thing, Sid, I love you, I love the Israelis, but they don't want to ruffle feathers. They're worried about maybe the bottom line in their business, maybe people are going to get angry. So when 5,000 pro-Palestinians who are morons, and they know nothing about the history of this country, rally in Bay Ridge, they don't want to say nothing, you know? They don't want to have people rallying in front of their businesses or their offices. And it didn't bother me as much before I left, as it does now. I think people need to get angry around the world that there are people in the streets of America, of Europe, around the world advocating for people who are committing murder and making us look like... We're the bad guys.
0: Well, it's also not just about Israel. If Israel goes down, what do you think is going to happen to the rest of the world? They'll come for the Jews first and the Christians afterwards. We are literally at the forefront of the fight for humanity in many ways. And so it is about you. If you're listening and you're sitting on the fence because, like, you know, Sid just said you don't want to ruffle feathers, you can't do that anymore. There's no gray area. There's black and there's white. And you're either fighting for the good or you're responsible for evil lifting up its head. And you all have to internalize that. There's no just thing as, like, reading the paper and then throwing it across the room. All right? Do something. Right. Get involved. If not for your own sake, then for your kids and your grandchildren.
1: So on the way out, if you had to, um, I guess, break it all down for somebody listening in L.A. right now LA. or Brooklyn, uh, because I think people are a bit confused as to exactly where this country is, The I guess what I'm looking for is the level of danger, how close we are here in Israel. To something huge happening. Where is it right now? On, in the, on this morning. I feel
0: less safe in Los Angeles and in New York than I do here. You time. really do. I mean, I everybody says that. But, I absolutely yeah. do. Because
1: okay. I don't feel unsafe here at all. At all. Exactly. And I walked through the the Arab quarters, those Muslim shops, mm-hmm. twice mm-hmm. on the way to the Western Wall, and I had some guy literally walk up to me and tell me to shut the f up. An Arab, as I came out of my cab, making my way towards the Muslim shops, wow. I couldn't care less. I got people who eye me up and down when I walk through those quarters for an hour at a time. It didn't bother me. But yet I'm scared of the tube train every once in a while.
0: Look, we have to inter- not just internalize, but make it clear to everybody else that this is our place and we are home. When what we consider, we in the West consider compromise and largesse, they consider weakness. When it is clear that the Jews are home to stay and we're not going anywhere and we hold out our hand in peace to whoever you want and 20% of Israeli citizens are Muslims and they get totally respected and educated and their mosques and whatever they need. But, but if you lift a finger, To a Jew, you're done. There's a, there's a little thing in here. We are not, we're not going back to the Holocaust. We're not going back to the Inquisition and to everything else that's happened to us over the years. We are home. We have an army. And yes, sometimes there's an October 7th and things fail, but we are strong and we are proud and we understand what we're doing here and we're not going anywhere. So are we afraid? We're surrounded by some pretty bad guys. Do we understand, you know, the, the righteousness of our path? Absolutely, and our kids get it. It's an unbelievable generation that's growing up here. They get it. They're willing to make the sacrifices because they understand that this is home, and we are never running away again, ever. God
1: bless you, man. You are terrific. Eve Harrow, folks. So if you get to Israel, and the One Israel Fund, which did, by the way, fund this trip, the wonderful people, Scott, everybody, uh, you got you got to go with her because she will teach you. I'll tell you one more thing. I'm going keep it a little longer, but... Uh, my friend Dove Hiking, you know Dove sure. Hiking, and his lovely wife Shani. So she works with the group, and they go out there. They buy land, and they take it from the Arabs, and they sell it back to the Jews. So I did a whole tour yesterday with a guy named Daniel Motidan, and I saw all those neighborhoods in and around where Arafat used to live when he wanted. They opened him 93% of Israel. It wasn't enough. It wasn't 100%. And, and a lot of that land now is being bought from the Arabs, who, by the way, will be killed if they it, find out can. you do that. Exactly. Right, and give it back to the Jews. <laughs> I love that, don't you?
0: Yeah, I wish it wasn't necessary, but there's a lot of Arabs living in homes that were once Jewish. So they cry about their refugees and everything. But, you know, I mean, not to offend anybody, I hope it's okay. Oh, Israel's not a white country. <laughs> You saw it when you were here. Why is Israel not a white country? Why are the majority of our population Middle Easterners? Because the Arab and African world threw out the Jews in the 1950s. My son-in-law, his mother's Moroccan, his father's Tunisian. Their baby's beautiful, by the way. (laughs) So, uh, you know, So, but nobody knows that. And we had a refugee problem. Nobody established an UNRWA or anything for us. We had to do it ourselves. And we have done it ourselves, and we're fine with doing it ourselves. But don't mess with us ever again. It's not happening. We are not back there. We are not going to stay back there. I've got a mission coming up in a couple weeks, a few spaces left for women to meet the women of Judea and Samaria, the women who are holding up the home front while their husbands are fighting and they're working and they're taking care of kids and they're taking care of their husband when he comes home, a little bit traumatized from the battlefield. They are awesome. They are awesome. And I want other women to meet these women, to connect with these women, because really I think that – A lot of the responsibility of raising our kids and educating them falls on the mothers, not just on the fathers. And there are women who live not far from me who raise their kids to blow other people up. All right. Mm-hmm. I don't understand it, but I have to accept it. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, where a lot of us in the West are. Because it doesn't fit into our mindset, it can't possibly be. Mm-hmm. Knock it off, guys. Forget the patronizing attitude. There are people out there who will do things that in your wildest nightmares you can't imagine, accept it, protect yourselves from it, cleanse the world from it if you can, and move on. That's how I see it.
1: Eve Harrow, you're great. Thank you. We do a uh, an International Women's Day once year at WABC. Uh, John Morgan you need to come on. You got it. Because you are Just that voice, that collective thinking. My guy Doug back in New York loved that, that collective thinking that will help us as we move forward. Great to meet you. Thanks for coming on today. We'll talk again very soon. You
0: got it. Sir. Thank Eve you so
1: Harrow much. right here on Sitting Friends in the Morning. If you didn't like that, I don't know what to tell you. She is uh, a very, very impressive lady. Oh, yeah. That wraps up our number one.
0: Okay. So I hope that you enjoyed that. Got a lot of nice feedback, which which was also super cool. Because you never know, like you, you know, get on there and whatever can go can go either way. But um, but he's re- super really really easy to talk to, and I know that his audience is are people who um, at their core love Israel, understand. The good and the evil and, uh, and are just trying to you know make some sense of everything that's happening here and happening in America, of course, because that's where, the, where his story is and um, what's happening with these elections and what's happening with this administration. Well, I have to say, guys, for those of you who are listening from the United States, American weakness is really destabilizing the Middle East. It's like uh, it's, it's a lot of these things that have gone on in the last week just kind of like poke the bear at Iran a little bit just to placate some of the conservatives in America, but not enough to really upset Iran is just not going to work. It's just not going to work. Uh, it's a game that's being played here, obviously for the elections and, but um, it, it leaves this place, meaning the middle East, a real tinderbox. And um, uh, it's, you know, it's not over yet. Uh, it's totally not over yet. So yesterday I had organized Um, I thought it was going to be one of those no good deed goes unpunished deals, but in the end it wasn't. I just, I had been down to the Gaza envelope with the foreign ministry. Um, they took a group of advocates down there and I realized how important it was to hear what happened there from the people who live there. Not enough to watch the films and, you know, watch the news and hear the press accounts and read the press accounts. But like I just said a couple of minutes ago, being there and hearing the story of the people there makes all the difference. So since I feel very strongly about the profession of being a tour guide, it's not like when I grew up in LA and being a tour guide was getting on the tram at universal studios and pointing out where the back lot of this film was and where they, you know, did that. It's so much more serious. And in many ways we, we're the ambassador for the state. People come here, they trust us to take them around, to tell them the stories, to tell them the history, to do the biblical stuff, all of it together. And, The way that we do that is incredibly important to how Israel is perceived. So we have to tell the truth. We also have to put it out in all its facets with the challenges, with the difficulties, um, not fluff it up, but also really give people a deeper understanding of a place that I don't think there's another place like this in the world with so many different emotions and conflict and different sides of the story. Anyway, so I decided that it was something that it was important that I get other guides to understand as well. And so since I'd had some connections because of that day, so and and a couple people who helped me tremendously, so I was able to put together yesterday, I wasn't sure it was going to come off even until the night before, but we had like 44 guides, uh, pretty much a full bus, we left Jerusalem, and we went down and we got into Kibbutz Be'eri. So Kibbutz Be'eri is one of the hardest hit places from October 7th. That's the place where people were like SMSing from their safe rooms all day, like the terror are here they're in our house they came in they burnt houses they slaughtered families yesterday i heard for the first time this i hadn't heard before of a baby who was killed there i think like a knife just driven through this baby's skull unbelievable things and we were split into two groups we were taken around by two residents um of of the kibbutz and they don't really like having people there and i totally understand it they don't you know it's not a circus and it's not as somebody said to me like terror tourism but they understood that that speaking to us was it's super important because we're going to move that message forward not like in a morbid way but in an understanding of what happened here now what's interesting about kibbutz berry is that they they're very much to the left um They, some of the biggest peace activists in Israel lived there. Um, We went into the house of Vivian Silver, who was one of the women who used to take Arabs to the Israeli hospitals. And she was really like at the forefront of a lot of left wing things. They knew exactly where she lived. They killed her intentionally. Um, Initially, Israel thought that she'd been taken hostage because they couldn't find her. Only after a month did they find some some remnants of her in her house, which had been completely incinerated. Um, we went in there, you see her coffee mug on the floor, see her dishes smashed. Just imagine her life in that building. And I I don't know because I don't know what happened in the last minutes of her life if she understood the betrayal that the people that she had really devoted herself, herself to and felt like, you know, they were human beings that um, we could come to some kind of coexistence with, um, betrayed her in the most horrific way possible. And it's interesting for me. And I want to keep up the dialogue with the person that took us around. I had a long talk with him. He said something totally right. He said on October 6th, we wouldn't have been having the conversation because I come from the right and he comes from the left and things were very tense in Israel before October 7th. People weren't talking to each other. They were yelling at each other. But now I invited him for coffee. He absolutely agreed. I will probably have him on this podcast one day. Um, He... Is going through a major crisis in his life and which I'm not, I'm not going through the crisis of being betrayed because I never believed them to begin with. And I have always felt at least for my entire adult life that, um, they want to destroy us. And when I say they, I mean it collectively, I'm sure there's some very nice people in there, but they have absolutely no power. And, Um, No influence. So it's all very sweet. And I understand the peace activists and they're looking for the shot, you know, for the sunshine in the darkness. But ultimately, that's not it's not what's going to happen. And what happened October 7th and the, the evil are the ones that are the ones who stand out. So I, you know, I see what they're going through. So he is devastated by Hamas. There's no one to talk to the barbarity with which they were killed. He's, you know, he's still, you see it's four months later, he lost his neighbors. He, he obviously survived, but you know, just by chance, but looked out of his window and neighbors were being killed and houses were burnt, being burnt down. So he still feels that, the Fatah, you know, the Palestinian Authority are okay, and it's just the Hamas is kind of taking them over and given, give, and being so terrible to everybody. I don't agree with him, and I think, and I know because we had it here just in small elements, um, that given the chance, the Palestinian Authority, the PLO would do the exact same thing. But I understand that it's too much for a human being to have your entire worldview shattered. You know, it would be like if somebody said to me, my kids weren't my kids, or I don't know, something that was like a main plank of my life um, suddenly wasn't, right, then, uh, you know, like, the, I don't know what I would do with that either. And so they're going through a really hard time, and and I feel for them. I really, really feel for them um, on a human level, and I think that's super important. And now that there's dialogue, because what happened in Bayerie is two brothers from Otniel, which is in the southern Hebron Hills, came to help them were killed. They dedicated a, a a Torah. Even they have a synagogue. Not everybody goes, obviously, but they dedicated a Torah there. And you know they're, they're seeing that like at least those of us who live in Judea and Samaria feel that all Israel is us, and that's why unfortunately we're paying such a big price in this war. Close to forty percent of the soldiers that are being killed are from these areas. Seven percent from my area in Gush Etzion which tells you the education and the values that we put into our children is not just about us. It's about, it's about all Jews. It's about all Israelis. It's about all good people ultimately. So, um, so there's, a, there's an opening now. Unfortunately, what happened October 7th did create an opportunity for the caring and the openness within Israeli society. I'm not even talking about the enemy because I really don't give a damn about them. Um, and the sooner we get rid of them, the better. For all of us, I care about Israeli society and the unity and where we have to go forward because um, that phrase, you know, united, we stand, divided, we fall, is absolutely so true. And it, our outside enemies are meaningless if we're ripping apart ourselves here within Israeli society. And so what's happened in the last four months, I can't believe it's already four months, is that there is that dialogue and that understanding. A lot of it is happening with the soldiers. Like my son told me, you know, he, he's been serving with people who would ordinarily, ordinarily never speak to or have anything to do with. And they have literally become like brothers for life, you know, and, um, and it's a beautiful thing to see. And I think that these soldiers who are coming out who understand the mission and, and say, there's no more justified war. And from what I'm reading, like, especially in Gaza, they're doing an unbelievable job. They're paying for it. But, um, I was reading this general, um, John Spencer. He's out of Colorado. I forgot what institute he, he heads, but he's like a Richard Kemp, but in America, you know, uh, um, he was in Fallujah and he's got all this war experience and he just cannot believe. How the Israelis are fighting this war, how successfully they're fighting this war with a civilian casualty rate, like lower than any war that's ever been fought. And, uh, he's just like, it's a, you know, not Jewish, not Israeli. And he just is amazed at, um, at what Israel is doing. And it's, it's really, it's so nice to hear that with all, with all the criticism that's coming out. So anyway, so we were in Beirut and that was super, super, super important. And I hadn't been there yet. And, you know, just you walk around and you know that. People were just like killed right there, and uh, and you hear the stories, and it, it, they don't get any less shocking with time. Um, and from the people you know who actually went through it, um, it's really it's so difficult. But from there, we went to Steyrot, and we went into well, the police station was was burned, was totally destroyed in order to kill the terrorists inside. Um, but we did go to their temporary place, and we saw. We saw some of the films of what happened and how, you know, civilians were killed in the street. We spoke to a woman she's an arch, she's an army, she's a soldier. Who was called in? She was there already, like at 7:15 on that morning of October 7th, and she's driving to Stay Road, and she still doesn't understand what's happening. She just got called to come there from her home because there were rockets. She doesn't—they don't yet understand that there are terrorists roaming the street, and she drives into Stay Road, and the first thing she sees is some joggers lying dead on the ground from from bullets, and then she sees a van of 13. um Like older people, you know, seniors who had who were going to the Dead Sea for like the weekend. Um, They were leaving early and their van was was uh, was, you know, trapped and and all 13 of them old people um, were just like lying all over the place. They'd all been killed. And so she, you know, slowly, slowly she realizes what's happening. She herself went down one street instead of another and found out later, had she gone down the original street that she normally goes down, she would have been killed because there were terrorists waiting there. So she was alive and able to tell us the story and, um, put, shed like a little light into what's happening. Steyrot is the town just outside of Gaza where they have been receiving rockets for like 20 years. And, um, Only there's about 36, 37,000 people that live there and only about seven, 8,000 have returned. And it's very difficult. And she said, listen, and I thought this was a super important She said, We're not monkeys in a cage. Like people come here like to gawk at us. And that's not what's happening. We're trying to rebuild our lives. We're trying to get back here if it's safe, if there's no more rockets. But in the meantime, the war is still going on for them. You know, there are many tens of thousands of Israelis who are not in their homes because their homes are still war zones. Uh, so we did that, and then we went to um, the parking lot where the cars had been taken from the festival and from from October 7th. Now, I had been there a few times, but I had been outside the parking lot just looking in. And yesterday we got permission, and we met with a, an Army spokesperson and one of the spokespeople from the Israeli police, and they met us inside and took us around, and it was a completely different experience Um, it's like, a, it's like, it's, it's a car graveyard, but it's not the graveyard for the cars. It's a graveyard for the people. Every single car that we saw had either been burnt, uh, with people killed inside, or there were bullet holes in the windshield because, you know, people had been shot there. Um, there were the cars also of the terrorists, one of which had like, um, Uh, some kind of mount that had been put specifically on the roof in order to shoot out, um, like bullets, you know, like a rapid fire. It had gotten stuck somewhere in the mud. They showed us the size of the bullets and what that was supposed to do. So they can't even imagine if that thing had gotten into one of the cities, it just would have slaughtered, you know, hundreds more people. Um, And the ambulance, the ambulance that had been at the Nova Festival there, you know, because at all these festivals, you always have an ambulance, someone gets hurt, someone's not feeling well, whatever it is, um, totally burnt. Um, The remains of 16 people were found in the ambulance. And just to walk around there and realize, first of all, it's like hallowed ground. Um, The older soldier, the reservist who took us through there, and he's been there three times a week for the last four months. He says he still walks through there and his heart contracts when he looks at these cars and realizes what happened in these cars. But with all that and with all needing to hear the story, he told us to be very careful. And if we took pictures to not take pictures of the license plate, because we don't want to hurt the family. Like if, There's still the story needs to get out, but we're also being very careful of the sensitivity to the personal stories and the families, you know, that shouldn't see that the car that their loved one was murdered in is now, you know, like being posted on Facebook. So to be very, very careful when we did that. Um, He told us that if any of us were Khanim, you know, from the priestly cast, we should not be there. Khanim are not supposed to go into a graveyard. And he said, this is tech, this is a graveyard. Um, After the main. Obvious parts of bodies and personal effects were taken out. They came and cleaned all the cars of the ashes. They had a hundred and sixty body bags full of ashes that they collected from the cars. And after that, archaeologists came in and sifted through all those ashes and were able to identify seven people from bones and other other human. Um, other pieces of people that were found in the ashes. And, and therefore they were able to give some closure to seven families of what had happened to their loved ones. Cause there are a lot of people who still don't know what happened to them on October 7th. The assumption is they were taken hostage, but it's not clear or maybe they were killed and their bodies are in Gaza and tremendous. I can't even begin to tell you from, from AI to every GoPro to archaeologists are being used by Israel to somehow identify people. So the families are not caught in this, not knowing what happened. And anyway, you just walk up and just walk down the rows and rows of cars and over a thousand cars. And just, you get an idea of the scale of what happened that day. And now they're trying to figure out what to do with the cars. Cause you can't just bury them because I guess like the metal or the rust leaches into the ground and it's on the grounds of a community and this used to be like a field of theirs so it's not really clear what's going to happen on that level also then he showed us a film that when they finished like the, the last like cleaning of the cars and identification they had a ceremony there where they said Kaddish, where they said the prayers for the dead and people who had been working like for weeks stoically just completely broke down and I thought to myself for the gazillionth time how amazingly blessed I am to be living in this country among such brave people. Brave not meaning that you don't feel. Brave meaning that you feel and you're scared and you do it anyway because it's not about you. It's about other people. There's a there's a thought in Judaism that there are 36 righteous people in the world, at any given time. And it's because of them that the world is held up. It's because of their piety or their greatness that the world continues to exist because there's so much not good in the world. And I've been thinking over the last weeks that it's not possible that there's only 36 people because I myself know hundreds of people who would fall into that category. I was talking about this with someone last week and they said that they think, and I, I actually this idea really resonated with me, that it's not 36 specific people at any given time. There are 36 people in the world who fall into that category, but it like goes from person to person. Like anybody at any given time could be one of those Lamed Vavnikim could be one of those righteous people upon whom the existence of the world rests for that moment. And that is, that is the magnificent thought because We all have God in us. We all have the potential to be righteous, at least for a split second. And to have that responsibility, but not just a responsibility, but that greatness to maybe, maybe, maybe for that one second, I was one of the people that held up the world. And I'm not talking about me because I'm sure I wasn't even for a millisecond one of those people, but it helps me understand the people here in Israel who I meet, who I just, I can't, I, I just... I, this person is inhuman in the in the best sense. our enemies are not human in the worst sense, and I meet people here that you know soldiers who say I'm, we're going I'm going back, I haven't finished. We cannot let these kinds of people you know control our lives and and threaten the world and and other people who have just gone so beyond anything that they ever thought that they could do because society or other people needed it and it's just um I know I'm, I'm grasping for the words here because, because I can't find them, but it is uh, a gift that Hashem gave me to be able to be here now and to be able to even get, like, like I said, like a little glimpse of some of this greatness and feel like these are my people. These are my people, and they're trying to kill this. And you have to understand, all of you out there, that trying to kill this and us is killing God and killing the goodness in the world. This is this is not just about a little country like fighting for its existence. It's um it's so obvious, it's so clear how much more it is. And after that, the parking lot we went to another kibbutz to Nachalos had been there before. We spoke to the people there, they told us what happened, whole families killed in their houses. And then the last thing we did at dusk was we went to where the Nova Festival had actually happened. I had been there quite a few times before. I'd actually been there just the day before with one of my daughters. But we were there when the light was like the light that it was with the Nova. Like they were there at dawn, right? So it's going from darkness to light. And we were there yesterday at dusk. It was opposite. It was going from day to night. But it was that same, I don't know if you've ever been in Israel and there's a special light at those times of transition. Um, and it's, it's, uh, photographers love it, right? Cause it's like, uh, it, it's almost a little, it's not fuzzy, but it's, it's, it's also not sharp. There's something going on there and to just walk around and really also hallowed ground and, uh, new trees have been planted there. Um, last week they planted a whole new grove of trees, and just to feel like it happened here and you can almost hear this. You can almost hear the screaming and you can almost, you can almost feel what happened there. And just, you can get super depressed and sad and you can at the same time get sad and then get, um, energized by, okay, this is never happening again. And, and feel like you need that anger. It's not even anger though, because anger I've always found anger to be not good for me. It eats away at me. It doesn't help. If I'm angry, I'm usually angry at a person, and I just, in general, the people that I have found that I have been angry at, I've just basically cut out of my life because it's not good for me and it's not worth my time at this point, and they're they're not worth my time. So uh, if it's not, I'm not talking about little, little arguments you have with people. I'm talking about like people who just like are toxic. So that's been out. So I'm not talking about that kind of. That kind of anger. I'm talking about like this. This is not just. This is not right. That kind of anger. And just redouble. We have to redouble our efforts to make sure that these people do not get any kind of grip on society. And do what they want to do, which is really basically take over the world. Okay. No exaggeration. Um, What was really nice about yesterday is that we had a couple of representatives from Israel's foreign ministry on the bus with us. Um, And they were amazing. I have to say that because I'm always critical of, you know, the government and this and this and this. But I I was very impressed with them. Um, They explained to us what they're doing on the diplomatic front, um, how, how difficult it is for Israel, because We are constantly being judged on a level that no one else is judged. Everything we put out has to be 100% correct, while the other side can just lie with impunity. They can put out numbers, they can put out statistics, they can lie that um, it's not, that UNRWA is not the same thing as Hamas, and that all the humanitarian aid that Israel is sending in is actually going to feed our enemies, and they can just lie and lie and lie and lie and lie. Um, and in a somewhat, I find patronizing way, the world accepts it. Like, well, what do you expect? They're going to lie, but they still believe them. All right. So, but they're held to completely different standards, which in a way is wrong. Like why shouldn't Muslims be held to the same standards as Christians and Jews? Like you should be telling the truth. Everybody should be telling the truth. You can have your narrative. You can have your perspective. You can't outright lie about a fact. And that's, what's been happening. And, and so that's all believed and, you know, and we're committing genocide and all that stuff. Um, but Israel has to be so, so, so super careful about everything that we do because, you know, the burden of proof is always on us. And there's so much antisemitism out there. There are countries that are trying to judge us fairly. Um, and you can see that with the whole UNRWA thing that there are countries who've now pulled their funding of an organization that has for 75 years perpetuated the so-called Palestinian refugee problem and has billions of dollars going essentially to Hamas and to terror groups. And there are some really good countries who've now said, whoa, and have accepted what Israel has shown them and have, are stopping the funding. And that whole thing is totally complicated. Uh, so, you know, there is that, but, but I, I was actually very impressed with, with how they, you know, reach out to different communities around the world, um, have different messaging for different countries because always, you know, it's to whom you're speaking. Um, how they really make the efforts in the Western world in the democracies, because that's where people count and people vote, and so you know it's important to try and get um, people to vote for people who understand the reality and you know will support Israel, as opposed to countries where it's like a waste of time to try and influence them, because you know like what's the point of influencing the Russians? They have absolutely no say in in the leadership of Russia, so you know they have certain efforts that they have to make and and they put them accordingly. And, and I actually found them very erudite, very, um, articulate and understanding of the situation, incredibly knowledgeable, willing to answer even some of our stupid questions. And I have to say that, and one of them, I would definitely like to get either on a webinar or on a podcast, um, because it, de- it gave me definitely a different perspective on, what the life of, a, of an Israeli diplomat uh, on this whole world scene. And, um, you know, obviously they're constrained. They can't say everything they want because they represent the Israeli government as opposed to somebody like me You can say whatever I want, because I don't work for anybody that's, you know, I don't care. Um, but you don't have that when you're a public servant. And so, They definitely have those constraints. And within that, though, you know, they are they are really doing some amazing work like they were able to when that lie came out that Israel had bombed the hospital and killed 500 people. And then it turned out that actually Hamas had bombed the hospital uh, themselves and they were able to, you know, do the damage. control. And a few very big news services immediately came out and bought the Hamas version. And they were able to quickly get the truth out and the proof of the truth and and turn that around. And that was like that was like super important. So. So it was great to hear from them. And all in all, it was a very intense day. Um, I know that the other tour guides appreciated it and were very, first of all, overwhelmed. Most of them had not been down to the Gaza Envelope before and uh, and had definitely not been in these places and heard from people. and uh, And hopefully it will make them um, not just better guides and better at teaching what's happened here, but also better Israelis and better Jews and more sensitive to, you know, the situation that we're in right now. Um, because all of us have all our skin in this game and kids or spouses who are fighting and we're all here. And for us, it's, it's really, it's not just a job, um, but it's, it's something, it's really like a mission and something so much more important. So that was my, uh, that was my contribution to that world yesterday. And, and I woke up this morning crying because I realized that I hadn't yesterday had time to kind of let everything percolate into me because I was worried that we're going to get from place to place on time. And we were meeting people and all the logistics and making sure everybody was back on the bus and I didn't leave everyone in the bathroom and all those kinds of things. Um, and so like, a lot of what we heard yesterday really just like hit me in the middle of the night. I didn't sleep well and I got it this morning thinking about that. So hopefully it made me a better Israeli and a better Jew and a better human being and all this stuff that I wanted for everyone else. Absolutely for myself as well. Um, And just uh, there we go and all of us, all of us are better and all of us understand what's happening here. And, uh, and that's it for today. I'm exhausted now. So I hope wherever you are that you are well and that you are really trying to support Israel. And, and you know, it's um, this is not ending anytime soon. Um, so hopefully our leadership all over the world will make some good and smart decisions, not just what's good for them and for their reelection campaign, um, but what's good for all of us little people who ultimately pay the price for those major decisions that are made. So thanks to Ben and to Tabitha and to all of you. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. Take care, everybody, and goodbye for now.